So Mark chapter 4 today, uh, if you've been with us, we're, we're working through chronologically uh, the life of Jesus. And we've been looking at great big sections, right? Like the last couple of weeks, we spent two weeks in Matthew 13 and there was a lot there. And now we're in Mark chapter 4 and we're really just going to look at seven short verses, a pretty simple straightforward story, not real hard to understand in the reading. You you just heard it read and it's pretty straightforward. But I would say to you, there's something here that it points to uh, that has great power to change your life. Great encouragement for us in the midst of the things that we go through. The truth is life is filled with all sorts of struggles. I think every single one of us know that Uh, we could go around the room. Some of you right now, if I ask that question, Uh, Is there something in your life that's weighing on you, that's keeping you awake, that's causing anxiety, that's you're struggling with in your life? As I ask that question, you immediately know what that is. And you know what that is because you're right in the middle of it right now. And I want us just to think about when we go through different struggles in our life. And, And maybe today, hopefully that's not you today. Maybe you sit here and you go, well, I don't have anything right at this moment that's just pressing in on me. But if you stopped and thought about it, you probably pretty quickly could come to something in the not too distant past that you go, yeah, I know what that's like. And so it's important as we think about those times and as we struggle, uh, there's going to be struggle in a fallen, sinful world. We live in a broken world full of sinful people and there are going to be struggles. There are going to be hard times. There's going to be different things that come at us. And, and I'm going to tell you right from the beginning, before we even look at this, right off the top, When you become a believer, it doesn't mean those things go away. You become a follower of Jesus and you seek to follow him and be obedient to him in every area of your life. And it doesn't uh, inoculate you from all the struggles in the world. They're still there. In fact, if you seek to follow Jesus and follow him fully in the ways that he's called us to, it's probably going to bring some harder things. It's going to bring you out of step with the way the world operates. And in some ways, it's going to make things more difficult. And so as we look at this passage this morning, we're going to see Jesus and his disciples in the middle of a very literal storm. A storm's going to come up on them in a boat, and it's so intense that they think they're going to die. And so it's pretty intense. It's it's a literal storm in their life, but there's also anxiety and fear and struggle that comes along with it. And as we look at this story and what happens here, I want us just to think about Jesus's power in the midst of this storm. And that's the way I want us to look at just these seven short verses, this text this morning. And the way we're going to look at it is first, I want us to consider the reality of Jesus's power. Secondly, the magnitude of his power. And then lastly, the significance of his power. So the reality, the magnitude and the significance of his power. So let's just start with the first one, the reality of his power. And when I say reality, when we read this text and we look at it and say the reality of Jesus's power, what I mean by that is that this literally, truly happened. That this is a real thing, that Jesus came down, the the God of the universe came down in the incarnation and lived among us. And he walked through life and he dealt with the things that we deal with. And when we read this story, Jesus literally physically got into a boat and went out with it on his disciples and came across this storm. And this happened. And sometimes we read the gospels, or, or maybe you have kind of a uh, a mind that is that is quick to be skeptical and go, yeah, but did it really happen just like that? And and maybe they embellish the story over time, or maybe they were kind of making it sound a little better than it was. And so sometimes that objection comes. Sometimes people go, yeah, well, there's just stories that built up over a long period of time and they kind of embellished and that's what it's like. And we don't know that that really happened. But there's something I want to show you here that's really important when you just read this on its face. And maybe you skim right over it. 
may seem really insignificant as you read it. But in verse 38, as Jesus is in this boat and he's asleep as the storm comes up. And in verse 38, it says, but he was in the stern and he was asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And you can read that and you can say, okay, Jesus is asleep in the stern on a cushion. So what? Big deal, right? I mean, it's one half of a verse. It's one line. That's just a small detail of what was going on. But what I want to point out to you is this. What that tells us is this is an eyewitness account of what happened, right? We know Mark's gospel is written by Mark a follower of Jesus who's writing from Peter's eyewitness account. He's writing down the things that Peter are telling him. And that's the gospel of Mark. Peter, who was there and saw these things. If you look closely in the gospel of Mark, you'll see Peter right in the center of everything that's happening there because this comes from his eyewitness account. But again, you may say, well, so what? What does that prove that it's an eyewitness account of what they saw and what happened? Oftentimes people will levy this against the Bible and they'll say that it was embellished and it was stories And they weren't even concerned so much with history and it was fictitious stories where they were trying to embellish and all these things. But here's the thing I want you to consider. Realistic fiction was not invented at this point in history. And not only was it not invented in this point in history, it wouldn't show up for another 1500 years. And so if you make the claim that the gospel of Mark is embellishing, it's telling us a fictitious story and putting some details in there to make it seem more realistic. You're saying that the writer of Mark, that this guy wrote and invented a whole literary genre that no one else would discover for another 1500 years, that he alone came up with it and came up with this idea that I'm going to put some details in to make it seem more authentic. And then no one else picked up on that. And that's pretty amazing. That's a miracle in and of itself, if that's the case. But what I'm telling you is what what we know from history is that that's not the case. And so we're very used to this. And I don't know if you've ever considered this before, but if you read a book of fiction today, everything's realistic fiction, right? If you've ever read a book of fiction, you open it up and it'll tell you, and the main character walked in and he was wearing blue jeans and gray shoes and, you know, had no hair. And it'll tell you like about what the person's like. And you'll go, yeah, okay. I've got a picture of it in my mind that didn't exist at this time. And so when you're reading through, and maybe you had never noticed this before, you're reading through the gospel of Mark and it says, Jesus was in the stern, he was in the back of the boat and he was asleep and he was on a cushion. It's not realistic fiction. It's an eyewitness account of someone who was there. And they said, there he was. And he was asleep in the middle of the storm. And so I tell you that as we start to think about the, what is presented here about who Jesus is, the reality of his power is that Jesus really lived And he really went through these things and this really happened. And these eyewitnesses wrote it down for us to know who he is and what he's like. And so that's the first thing, just briefly, the reality of Jesus's power. But the second thing, I want us to really think about the story together and the magnitude of his power that we see here. And so let's just set the context. If you've been with us the last couple of weeks, we were in Matthew chapter 13 and we're looking at these parables and the way Jesus was teaching If you go back to Matthew chapter 13 at the very beginning, it says almost word for word what it says here in Mark chapter four in verse one. It says again, he began to teach by the sea and a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got in a boat and he sat in it on the sea and the whole crowd was behind the sea, beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables and and in his teaching, he said to them, and then it starts to unfold the same parables that we were just looking at in Matthew chapter 13. 
I mention that just to say the context of where we are with Jesus in this boat. And he says, let's go out is he's been teaching all day. It's this exact, it's a parallel passage to Matthew chapter 13. If you've never thought about that, there's a lot of passages that line up in the gospels. And so we're getting it from a little different perspective in Mark's gospel than we are in Matthew's gospel, but it's talking about the exact same thing. And so they fit together. They run parallel. And so that's why we are in Matthew 13 this week. And now we've jumped to Mark chapter four, because Matthew doesn't tell us of this story at the very end of it, but Mark does. And I wanted us to look at that. So Mark chapter four is the same thing that was happening in Matthew chapter 13. But then look at what it says in verse 35 and 36 on that day. So that day that he got into the boat and pushed out to teach them the parables on that day, when evening came, he said to them, let's go across to the other side and leaving the crowd. They took with him in the boat just as he was and other boats were with them. And so he gets in the, he never leaves the boat from teaching all day. And he says, instead of going back onto the shore with all these people that are crowding around, let's just push off and we'll go to the other side. And so they start to make their way across the Sea of Galilee. And what happens is it tells us as Jesus falls asleep. And I know that's, again, an insignificant detail, but I want you to think about this for just a second. We're in the middle of Jesus's ministry, year and a half, year and three quarters of the way through. He's at the height of his popularity. Everywhere he goes, he is surrounded by crowds of people. They want to see a miracle. They want something from him. They want to hear his teaching. They want to just see him everywhere he goes. So much so he had to get in the boat and push away so he could talk to the people, right? The banks of the Sea of Galilee are pretty steep. You get in the boat, you push away, and it's kind of like a natural amphitheater. And so he could teach. And he gets to the end, and instead of going back into the crowd, he goes, let's just go to the other side. And as they go, he almost immediately falls asleep. And I want you to think about that for a second. You know what it's like to have a surrounded with people that need something from you every moment of the day. Everywhere he went. Can you imagine what that would be like? And I I look around the room and some of you know exactly what that's like right now because you have several small children. Every moment of every day. Mama, 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 mama. Right? Daddy, 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 daddy. I need something right now. Right? You know what that's like. What happens when you get them all to bed? You fall asleep. (laughs) You collapse. You go, oh, I'm so tired. I need just a moment. That's what happens with Jesus here all day, teaching and preaching and telling these parables and talking about the kingdom and healing people and doing all these things. And they pull out and he falls asleep. And I mention that for this reason. The Bible says that Jesus has been tempted in every way that we are yet without sin, that he knows exactly what it's like to be exhausted. He knows exactly what it's like when people want something from you at every moment. He knows exactly what it's like to be so tired And so they pull away and the boat pulls out and he falls asleep. And as he falls asleep, it tells us that the storm arises. Verse 38. But he was asleep in the stern on the cushion. And they woke. I'm sorry, go back. Verse 37. A great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. Right. So this great windstorm comes and it starts to kind of come up on them. Now, if you know anything about where they are, they're on the Sea of Galilee. It's a little sea kind of north of Jerusalem, about 45 miles north. We've talked about kind of geography and where it is and where he's operating right now in his ministry. The Sea of Galilee is only nine miles wide and 13 miles long. It's not very big. We say Sea of Galilee. It's really a lake. It's it's not even a great big lake, but it's a lake. 
But what you may not know about the Sea of Galilee is it's about 700 feet below sea level. And it's so low that around it, the banks are pretty steep and there's some hills all around it. And to the north, there's a mountain that's 9,200 feet. And so you have a mountain right to the north and then this really low lake. And so what happens on the Sea of Galilee is the uh, warm air from the lake moves and comes in contact with the cold air coming from that mountain. And there's great storms that come up really quickly on the Sea of Galilee. In fact, you can go look this up online. You can see videos of what it looks like when a a storm comes up on the Sea of Galilee. We, We have just in the last few years, they've recorded waves up to 10 feet on this little lake. Can you imagine being out on a lake and suddenly there's 10 foot waves? The word that's used here in verse 37, where it talks about this great windstorm, is that kind of talking about like a tornado or a hurricane type winds. And so all of a sudden, in an instant, they're on this lake and there's 10 foot high waves and they're breaking over the boat and it's starting to fill up. And the disciples that are with Jesus start to freak out, right? They they go and wake them up and they go, what are you, what are you doing sleeping? We're about to die here, right? They, They wake them up. They say, don't you care that we're perishing? But I want you to understand that when we read this, this is not people that are just prone to overreacting. If you know anything about Jesus, the disciples, about half of them were fishermen that made their living on this lake. They were out in it all the time. They had seen these storms. They had seen these things happen. And so it's not like they were just quick to freak out over a storm. They knew what it was like. They had been through these before, but in this case, they're fearing for their lives. It's that serious of a storm. And so I want you to get that picture for a second. Seasoned fishermen that are used to this are thinking, I'm going to die. This is it. We are perishing here. The boat's filling up. And that's when they go and wake Jesus up. Now, there's something else I want you to consider about the storm, though, before we just even think about the magnitude of Jesus's power in it. I can't say this with certainty, right? So this is the Bible and the words that it says, and I'm stepping over here and I'm I'm making uh, an assumption here. And I can't say this with all certainty, but I'm saying this because of some things that are in the Bible and other places. If you read the book of Job, if you've ever read the book of Job, it's about a man named Job who's faithful to God and he has lots of things in his life and basically everything gets taken from him. The the, uh, accusation comes from Satan against Job that the only reason that Job is faithful is because everything in his life has been pretty good. And he comes before, Satan comes before God and he makes this accusation and God says, okay, you can take some of these things from Job, but you're not allowed to touch Job. And so what happens is Satan takes everything. He destroys all of his stuff. And you read through that account and what it says there in Job chapter one is that his children are together in a house and they're eating a meal in the oldest child's house together. And it says, behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of their house and it fell upon the young people and they all died. And I say that to say this, that this storm that comes upon them and wipes all of them out is at the hand of Satan. He brings this storm into their life. Right? And he's doing it to try to shake Job's faith. That's what he's doing. But you see the spiritual element to what's happening. Or a little later in Luke chapter 22, right before Jesus will be arrested, Jesus says to Peter in the garden of Gethsemane, he's talking to him about praying, being faithful and staying awake. And he says to Peter, he says, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. And he tells Peter that Satan has it in for you. 
and he's going to attack you. You see this all throughout the gospel or the, the New Testament about how there's spiritual warfare and everything that we go through. And so I say that to say this. If Satan's going to put all his energy and time into a place anywhere in the world at this point, where is it going to be? Attacking Jesus and his disciples. Now, was the storm from Satan that he brought it to try to kill them? I don't know that. But what I do know that the scriptures tell us over and over is that we're all going to go through things in our life and that's going to be fertile ground for spiritual attacks. It's a lot harder when things are not good. It's a lot easier to say like the disciples, do you not care that we're perishing? Right? They get in the middle of it and they freak out and they go, oh no. Right? It's easier to ask that question when things are difficult. And so in our lives, when hard times come, it's going to be most poignant, those attacks, those spiritual attacks, when things are not easy. And so I want you just to think about that. That what's happening in your life and how those things come at you at different ways. I've seen this in my own life at different times. I can look back at times when there's a hard struggle. Uh, you may not know this, or maybe you do. Uh, Joanna and I have been blessed. My wife, Joanna, and I have been blessed with three boys. Very great blessing in our life to have three children that God has given us, three healthy young men in our family. But what you may not know is Joanna has had seven pregnancies. And that's not easy. In fact, the first pregnancy, the first time we said we were excited to have children and Joanna gets pregnant and we take the test, we're pregnant, we go to the first visit and they say this is an ectopic pregnancy. If you don't know what that is, that means the egg is fertilized. Instead of moving to the uterus, it's growing in your fallopian tube. And when they tell you that, by the time they tell you that, they say, and by the way, it's already not viable. And so when you find out you're pregnant in the first doctor, doctor's visit, they say, and, and this baby isn't going to make it. And it took a long time. It was a long process. As that goes through that and we had to wait and we had to check her levels and we had to go through this. Joanna worked in the hospital at the time. And so they were checking it every day and making sure she was okay, that it actually can bring great harm to the mother. And we went through that and it took months and months and months. And finally the doctor said, okay, you're cleared. You can have a baby. You can try again. And so we did. And we tried again and almost immediately Joanna got pregnant. And we went back to the doctor this time with a little bit of intrepidation. Is it going to be in the right place? And they said, it's in the right place. And not only is it in the right place, it came from the same fallopian tube. And they said, that's amazing that that happened and it came and it's implanted in the right place. And we went, yes, thank you, God. And we went back at eight weeks and we saw the heartbeat and it's in the right place. And we're like, yes. And we went back at 12 weeks and it's in the right place and there was no heartbeat. And they went, we're sorry. This baby didn't make it. And I went, oh. And I remember saying, I remember very clearly in those moments, you're in this storm and you feel like you're just about out of it. And then all of a sudden you're right back in the middle of it again. And it was so easy in those moments to say, God, why like this? Right? It, was, it wasn't in the right place and now it's in the right place. And it seems like it was, all, why like that? Why both of those things one after another? And it was really difficult. It was very easy to say what the disciples say here. Do you not care that we're perishing? And I don't know if you've ever felt that way, but times in your life when things are really, really difficult, and that's what you want to say to God. 
Do you not care that we're perishing here? And that's what the disciples say in the middle of this storm. And they think they're going to die. And as this comes up upon them, but look at what Jesus does in verse 39. And he awoke and he rebuked the wind and he said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was great calm. Whether or not this was a spiritual attack, whether or not Satan was behind it, it was most certainly a deadly storm that was threatening their lives. And they wake Jesus up and they say, we're dying here. And Jesus, at the voice of his word, he speaks and he says, peace, be still. And the storm stops. And not only does it stop, the sea goes calm. Can you imagine It's one thing if the storm stops, but the waves are still busting over the boat. It takes a moment for that to stop, but it all stops at once. And Jesus shows us the magnitude of his power. He shows us that at any moment in any storm that he has the power to end it. And so he does. He speaks and that storm comes to nothing and it stops. And you see that Jesus the the magnitude of his power. You see who he is. And they look at him and they say, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And you can imagine the disciples, they're scared to death of the storm. And now it says they're afraid of what they've just seen. And they go, whoa, this is who Jesus is. And we see the magnitude of his power in that moment that ultimately all things are under his control. But I want us to think, lastly, the significance of his power. You can say, okay, great. At his word, he says, peace be still, and it's ended. But the question may come, but why like that? Why the storm to begin with? Or maybe you sit here today in the middle of whatever it is you're going through, and you go, okay, Jesus has enough power to end the storm. And he says it, and it's over. And you're sitting here going, great, so why doesn't he end it? I would really like to hear him say, peace be still in my life. That would be great. I believe that he has that power, but why is it like this in my life? Do you ever feel that? I do. There's different times when I feel that, when I feel like the disciples, like, do you care that we're perishing here? I don't know if you've ever felt that way, but that does come at different times and you do feel like that. And so what's the meaning of this? Look at verse 39 or 40 and 41. He said to them, after he says, peace be still, he says to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Still no faith. (laughs) Right? He says, you're afraid because you don't have faith. I've been saying this a lot the last year. What is saving faith? Saving faith is transferring your trust from yourself to Jesus. It's placing your trust in who God is and what he's done for us in Jesus rather than yourself. And all of us, every single one of us is in process. Every single one of us is growing in that. And it becomes really, really difficult in those hard times. It becomes really difficult to completely trust Jesus when everything around you seems out of whack When things are difficult and you're laying awake and you're anxious and you're worrisome and things are pressing in on you, it's hard to say, I'm going to just trust you completely. 
But that's what saving faith looks like. Transferring your trust from yourself to Jesus. And every single one of us is in process. It takes time. And so we say here all the time. We want to grow in obedience to Jesus in every area of our life. That's what we talk about when we say discipleship. And we're all in process. None of us has arrived. None of us has fully done that. We could add to that definition that we want to grow in obedience to Jesus in every circumstance of our life. I want to put my faith in who he is and what he says is true rather than my understanding in this moment. And that's what he's saying to the disciples. Do you still have no faith? Why are you afraid? You're trusting what you see and how you would handle this and what you would do rather than putting your trust in me. And then he shows them why they can put their trust in him. Peace be still and it stops. And so they have part of it. They're struggling with it. They're grasping at what this looks like. They don't fully know yet. Remember, we keep saying this or I keep saying this each week. That as we go through the Gospels, everybody there is putting Jesus in a box, thinking of him as a conquering king, and he's going to overthrow governments, and this is what it's going to look like, and they're making it far too small. And at every turn, Jesus explodes their categories. Right here, that's happening, right? Right in front of them. Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? They don't have the fullness. And so it's hard. It's hard to grasp the why when you're in the middle of it in the middle of those storms. And sometimes you say, why is it so long? And why is it so hard? And why is it like this? And some of you are in it right now. And the answer of what God's doing and what he's doing here with his disciples is he's teaching us through the storm. He's calling us to put our trust more and more fully in him. When things become clearly outside of our control... All that is, is moving the, removing the illusion that you were ever in control to begin with. But oftentimes we try to operate that way and then the hard things come. We go, oh no, it's out of control. Well, it was always out of your control. But God's alerting you to that. And he's calling you to trust him more fully in it. And so right now, if you're in the middle of one of those moments where things seem really, really difficult, really hard, and you're wrestling with that right now, I don't want to say, well, this is exactly what God's doing and how he's working and what I don't know. I don't have the answer to that. None of us has the fullness of what that answer looks like. But what I can tell you for certain and what we know for certain, the incarnation, the cross of Jesus proves it to us is that when you're in the middle of those times, what we can say for certain is that it's not that he doesn't care. He cares for everything that you go through. He humbled himself to come into this world to be tempted in every way that we are yet without sin. And he comes to the end of his life where he deserves all the blessings of living this life perfectly in every way. And he says, no, I have come to lay down my life for you. I will take your sin upon myself and I will pay for it. And so doing, he shows us how he cares for us. And so when you're in the middle of the storm and you go, I don't know how this works. Don't you care that we're perishing? Look to Jesus and what he's done on the cross. He has proved his love for you. You can't say that he doesn't care. He does care. And it's hard to say things like, well, his timeline is different than our timeline. Yeah, but that doesn't help me right now. Sure seems like a long timeline. And so look to Jesus and what he has done and who he is. And so hear what God's word says. Second Corinthians chapter four, the apostle Paul writes, he says, 
For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Do you hear what he says? I want you to really think about the words of the Apostle Paul. This light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory that we can't even fathom. I want you to understand when Paul says this light momentary affliction, this is a man that was beaten, thrown in jail, shipwrecked, stoned, left for dead, all these snake bitten over and over everywhere he went. He ends up being martyred for Jesus, spends lots of time in jail, is writing letters. He goes to jail and says, count it all for Jesus. I'm going to make disciples in jail now. That's the man saying this light momentary affliction. And he says, that's preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. Because when those things come, it removes our eyes from the things that are seen and puts us on the things that are unseen. And that's where you can rest. And that's what he tells us. He's preparing us for the eternal and he will use it. And so when you read this text... And Jesus says, peace be still. And it ends, this segment ends with who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him. It's the magnitude of Jesus's power. And so I want you to consider this. If you're in the middle of a difficult time where you're asking those questions. If we have a God big enough to ask what's happening, why like this? We have a God big enough to trust that he's working in ways that we can't fully fathom. And that he's good. And he's working in those things. And he will bring them to good. He will bring them for his glory and our good. And we can trust him in that. And so I'll end here. I told you. Second baby. No heartbeat. Why like this God? And I vividly remember a week after that doctor's appointment. Running in the rain on the hill by my house. You walk out my front door and there's a huge hill. And I used to go run that hill like young people do when they (laughs) exercise. (laughs) And I'd run that hill and I remember listening to a particular song and praying and saying, God, why like this? Not angry, but like, why? Why now? And why like that? And why does it have to be this way? And I don't say this very often, but it's one of the few times God so clearly spoke to me in my life. Not the burning bush, Not a blinding light, but God spoke. And he said, those babies are not yours. They're mine. I went, okay. And then he said, and when I give them to you, they're still mine. He said, when I give them to you. Okay. And 12 months later, Asher was born. And 18 months after that, Jed was born. And four years after that, Quinn was born. (laughs) Thank you, God. And he's still good, even if he didn't give us the babies. They're his. But he is good. And he will bring those things for good. On a long enough timeline, you will see how it's for your good and his glory, and you can trust him. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you that you are the Lord of the storm. That when we don't see it, when we are in the middle of it, when we struggle with why like this, why in this way, why now, would you remind us of your great grace for us? 
Would you overwhelm us with the truth of who you are and the ways that you love us, the ways that you meet us in the middle of where we are? I pray for those right now that feel they're right in the midst of that season. Would you help turn our hearts to ask the question of what are you showing us right now? How are you teaching us in the middle of this? Would you help us to remove our eyes from the things that are seen and focus on the things that are unseen, the eternal truth of who you are and what you're doing? We thank you that we are going to see the fulfillment of all of it in every way. All of those things come together and we can trust you in that. And we pray all of it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.